Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 292 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Space 1970, Venera 7. 1970 was a good year for the Soviet Union and their growing space program. Recall the unmanned moon missions covered on the previous episode, when on September 24th, Luna 16 returned to the Earth with the first lunar soil samples taken by an automated probe, and then two months later, Luna 17 carried the first unmanned rover, the Nakhod 1, to the lunar surface. The multi-wheeled robot spent the next year exploring the Sea of Rains. But the moon wasn't the only celestial body being explored by the Soviets in 1970. The planet Venus was also of interest, which brings us to the Soviet Venera probes. Venera is a Russian word meaning Venus. It is also the name given to a series of unmanned Soviet probes that were sent to investigate the planet Venus. The first three probes had originally been designed to explore Mars, but they were repurposed as Venus probes. The first probe, Venera 1, was launched in February 1961, but radio contact was lost before it flew by Venus. Venera 2 was launched in November of 1965, and in February of 1966, the probe managed to fly by Venus at a distance of 24,000 kilometers, but its instruments failed before it could send the data back to Earth. The probe eventually began orbiting the Sun. Another failure. Venera 3 was also launched in November of 1965, but communications was lost with the spacecraft just before the lander reached the Venusian atmosphere. We do know that the probe impacted on Venus on March 1, 1966, which made it the first spacecraft to impact the surface of another planet. The probe delivered a pennant with the emblem of the USSR. Venera 4 was launched in 1967 and made its way to Venus. However, its descent module only survived to 25 kilometers from the surface due to being crushed by atmospheric pressure. In 1969, two atmospheric probes, Venera 5 and 6, were launched. Their mission was to obtain data on Venus's dense atmosphere. Both probes descended through the planet's hot, thick atmosphere and returned data for over 50 minutes before failing. Both probes were considered a success. Neither probe landed softly, but that was not their mission. Which brings us to Venera 7. Venera 7 was one of two identical spacecraft launched to Venus during August of 1970. The other identical spacecraft would have been named Venera 8. However, it did not leave Earth orbit. Thus, like many Soviet spacecraft that failed, it was given the Cosmos designation, specifically Cosmos 359. Venera 7's objectives were to return data from the Venusian atmosphere, make a landing on the surface, and continue to return data after landing. Now I'm going to describe the Venera 7 spacecraft and its subsystems. 
Keep in mind that there is a picture available on the website. Venera 7 consisted of an interplanetary bus based on the 3MV system and a lander. The 3MV planetary probe, which was short for third-generation Mars-Venus probe, is the designation for a common design used by early Soviet unmanned probes to Mars and Venus. It was an incremental improvement of the earlier 2MV probes and was used for Zond 1, 2, and 3 missions to Mars, as well as several Venera probes, including Venera 7. It was normal for the Soviet space program to use standardized components as much as possible. All probes shared the same general characteristics and differed only in the equipment necessary for specific missions. Each probe also incorporated improvements based on experience from earlier missions. The core of the 3MV stack was a pressurized compartment called the orbital compartment. This part housed the spacecraft's control electronics, a solar wind detector, a cosmic ray detector, radio transmitters and receivers, batteries, astro-orientation equipment, and so on. The compartment was pressurized to around 100 kPa and thermally controlled to simulate Earth-like conditions which removed the need for special electronic components that could reliably operate in extreme conditions. Mounted on the outside of the orbital compartment were two solar panels which supplied power to the spacecraft. They were folded against the body of the probe during launch and were only deployed when the spacecraft was already on its interplanetary trajectory. On the ends of each solar panel was a hemispherical radiator which radiated excess heat from the orbital compartment into space through a coolant loop. Also mounted on the orbital compartment was a 2-meter parabolic high-gain antenna used for long-range communications. Depending on the mission, the 3MV could also use other antennas, for example, antennas for communication with probes on the planet's surface. Below the orbital compartment was a second pressurized compartment called the planetary compartment. Depending on the mission, the planetary compartment either housed scientific equipment for orbital observation of the planet or was designed to detach and land on the planet's surface. For Venera 7, it was the lander. The Venera 7 lander was the hardiest of the Soviet Venus probes yet built. Its creators wanted the vessel to land on the planet's surface in working order. As a result, the lander became much heavier than its predecessors. The lander was designed to withstand higher pressures and temperatures as well as the shock of landing. Through the use of a single spherical shell, with no seams, welds, or holes. Titanium was used in the construction of the pressure vessel, and it was lined with shock-absorbing materials. The result was a more massive lander, weighing 490 kilograms. 
the Soviets used information collected from Venera's 4 through 6 to increase the strength of Venera 7. As a result, the Venera 7 lander could withstand temperatures up to 540 degrees Celsius, or 1,004 degrees Fahrenheit, and pressures equal to 180 bars, or 2,600 psi, for at least 90 minutes. This was significantly greater than what was expected to be encountered, but uncertainties as to the surface temperatures and pressures of Venus resulted in the designers opting for a large margin of error. The degree to which the lander was strengthened limited the amount of mass available for scientific instruments, both on the lander itself and the interplanetary bus. The lander did have a resistance thermometer and an aneroid barometer. The egg-shaped lander was kept cooled at minus 8 degrees Celsius by a refrigeration system in the main bus until it was released at the planet. This was to guard against Venus's intense heat for as long as possible. Additionally, a smaller parachute was made to speed up the capsule's fall through the dense Venusian air. Venera 7's instrument compartment was hermetically sealed. For course correction on the 3MV, a KDU-414 engine was attached to the top of the orbital compartment. It provided a maximum thrust of about 2 kilonewtons and used unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and nitric acid as propellants. Attitude control was achieved by several small cold gas thrusters. The whole 3MV stack was 3.6 meters high and weighed around 1,000 kilograms. Of course, to go to Venus, you need a carrier rocket. The carrier rocket for Venera 7 was a Monia-M, which means lightning. The Monia-M was 43.4 meters in height and almost 3 meters in diameter. It weighed 305,000 kilograms and had four stages fueled by liquid oxygen and kerosene. The Monia-M has an interesting history, so I will quickly share it with you. The development of the Monia-8K78M goes back to the R-7 rocket, which was extended with a fourth stage for interplanetary missions or high Earth orbit. The first two stages of the Monia were the Block A core stage and the strap-on boosters. The third stage was called Block I. It was powered by a four-chamber RD-108 engine. The fourth stage of the Monia was called Block L. It was powered by a S-1 5400 main turbofan engine. The Block L could be fired only once and had to be ignited at a precise time in order to achieve the necessary velocity. This requirement resulted in the need for a separate orientation and stabilization system and heat insulation for the tanks. Also, the ignition of the engines in weightlessness required the propellant to be pushed to the bottom of the fuel tank. To accomplish this, a solid rocket engine was started 
before the ignition of the actual engine at apogee of the transfer orbit, which simulated the engine ignition under the condition of Earth's gravity. The Block L was complicated, error-prone, and inflexible. It often delivered its payload in an unusable orbit. The original 8K78 booster was the product of a rush development program, and its initial launch record was no better than the 8K72 Luna booster that it was replacing. The first launch of a Monia was in October 1960 at Baikonur. By the end of 1962, there had been 12 launches of 8K78s, 10 of which failed, 5 Block L failures, 4 Block I failures, and one failure caused by the Block A core stage. The two successful launches had their probes, Venera 1 and Mars 1, fail en route to their respective planetary targets. As such, work began at Korolev's OKB-1 Bureau to improve the basic 8K78 vehicle. OKB-1 enhanced the core and strap-on stages and the Kosberg Bureau completely redesigned the Block I stage. The Block L stage was also slightly enhanced. The first six 8K78Ms were built using an RD-108 engine in the Block I stage, which was also used in the two manned Voskhod boosters. All subsequent 8K78Ms used the RD-110 engine, which were shared with the Soyuz booster. The 8K78M was first launched in 1964. However, the existing stock of 8K78s had not been used up yet, and they continued to fly until 1967. During 1967, the improved core stage and strap-on engines from the Soyuz 11A57 were adopted and made standard on all R7-based vehicles. The 8K78M made 297 launches and experienced 21 failures. None of the failures were caused by the core and strap-on stages. And after 1968, all failures were caused by the Block L stage. Until 2005, when one of the last boosters flown suffered a Block I engine failure. The final flight of a Monia M lofted an OKO early warning satellite from Plestisk in September 2010. Despite some apprehension that the launch vehicle manufactured in 2005 had exceeded its storage life. For most of its operational life, the Monia M was used to launch its namesake, Monia, and also OKO satellites into Monia orbits of high eccentricity that allowed the satellites to dwell over polar regions of the Earth. Now that we have put together all the pieces, let's begin the Venera 7 mission. Venera 7 was launched from Baikonur on August 17, 1970. During the flight to Venus, two mid-course corrections, another first in the Soviet Venus program, were made using the bus's onboard KDU-414 engine. Unlike earlier Venera entry profiles, the Venera 7 
lander did not break away from the main bus until both crafts were entering the atmosphere. This was done to extend the capsule's cooling period. Venera 7 entered the atmosphere of Venus on December 15, 1970. The lander was ejected once atmospheric buffeting broke the interplanetary bus's communications link with Earth. Sixty kilometers above the planet, the vessel's main parachute popped off and the probe began transmitting information about the thick night air around it, showing it to be about 97% carbon dioxide. Then, 35 minutes later, Venera 7 suddenly went silent. Without any warning, something had apparently destroyed the capsule. Soviet controllers back on Earth were shocked. They had thought for sure that this time every possible contingency about Venus had been accounted for with room to spare. Fortunately, the controllers had kept tracking and recording the mission even after the apparent signal loss. Several weeks later, a very pleasant discovery was made during a search through the recording tapes. Venera 7 had reached the Venusian crust intact and continued to send data for 23 minutes from the southwest section of Tinatin Planitia. It seems the capsule had somehow been knocked over upon landing, causing its transmitter antenna to point in an unfavorable direction. The lander's signal strength was only 1% of what it was during the descent through the atmosphere. The lander's transmission became almost indistinguishable from the regular background radio noise. While it may not have been a very graceful landing, Venera 7 had achieved yet another victory for the Soviet Union, the first successful landing of a functioning vehicle on another planet. In addition to its historical accomplishments, Venera 7 confirmed the numerous analysis of the Venusian environment from previous explorations during its brief lifetime. The temperature at Tinatin Planitia was recorded to be 475 degrees Celsius or 887 degrees Fahrenheit, give or take 20 degrees. A bare chunk of lead placed on the planet would melt. Air pressure approximately 90 times greater than Earth at sea level engulfed the small probe. Existing on Venus was equivalent to being 990 meters or 3,300 feet under the oceans of Earth, only much warmer and drier. No other member of the terrestrial family of planets held such high surface temperatures and pressures. It was later determined the parachute failed during the descent, resulting in a descent more rapid than planned. As a result, the lander struck the surface of Venus at about 16.5 meters per second, or 37 miles per hour. Using the temperature and models of the atmosphere, a pressure of 9 megapascals was calculated. From the spacecraft's rapid halt, from falling to stationary inside two-tenths of a second, it was possible to conclude that the craft had hit a solid surface with low levels of dust, leaving the medium-gain antenna not aimed correctly for strong transmission to Earth. When Venera 7 landed on the Venusian surface, 
It became the first spacecraft to soft land on another planet and first to transmit data from there back to Earth. The probe provided information about the surface of Venus which could not be seen through a thick veil of atmosphere. The spacecraft definitely confirmed that humans cannot survive on the surface of Venus and excluded the possibility that there is any liquid water on Venus. In 1970, the first probe to land on the planet isn't American, but Soviet. The Venera probes had an inner shell, an inner hull of titanium that was tough. It could withstand, at least for a while, the crushing pressure and the intense heat of the Venus surface. So the early probes to Venus got destroyed in just half an hour or under an hour. They were able to take data for only a short amount of time before they got crushed. But the data sent back before Venera's destruction is precise and surprising. Conditions on the surface of Venus are hellish. The temperature is about 860 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really, really high. I mean, the boiling point of water is 212 degrees, and lead melts at a temperature slightly lower than 860. So you'd have molten lead on the surface of Venus if you had lead there. It's a really bad place to be. The second planet from the sun once thought to be a goddess of beauty from its brilliant appearance in Earth's night sky, was finally revealed to be a world more like the fire and brimstone vision of Hades. Instead of invoking fear, however, there was now even greater curiosity and will to learn why a planet so similar to Earth in many fundamental ways could also be so radically different at the same time. Salutations from the Rio Grande Valley. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 292 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Space 1970, Venera 7. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. First of all, I want to apologize for mispronunciation of the Russian names in this episode. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 116 are available on the Archive podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I would like to credit my sources for this episode. Wikipedia, the NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Johnson Space Center, The Soviets and Venus Part 1 by Larry Klass, Space.com, Cosmos Magazine, and the Mimin Encyclopedia. Had a few afterthoughts about this episode. Venera 7 was a great accomplishment for the Soviets. It's not really very easy landing on Venus and continuing to operate, especially in 1970. It seems to me the Soviet success is in large part not giving up on a goal. 
and also the way they use standardized equipment for these Luna and Venera probes greatly increased the speed of construction. The modular concept of a standardized probe was very impressive. They could turn them out like sausages. Now, if a Soviet probe failed to leave Earth orbit, it is labeled as a Cosmos, such as Cosmos 359. If it had at least started toward Venus, it would have been named Venera 8. As such, failed missions could be named Cosmos as though the Soviets intended it to be only an Earth satellite. The Soviets did not tolerate failure well and they certainly did not advertise it. And we will see this again soon when the Soviets begin denying they ever had a manned lunar landing program. Now, like the previous episode, you need to see the pictures of Venera 7 to fully understand what I have described. Once you do that, hopefully, my descriptions will make a lot more sense. One more thing, this is kind of off topic. Last week... I was able to visit Boca Chica, Texas, where SpaceX is building and testing its Starhopper prototype rocket. It is a shiny chrome-style spacecraft that is somewhat reminiscent to a 1930s sci-fi rocket. At least, that's the way it looked to me. If you Google Starhopper, you will at least be able to see what I'm talking about. Anyway, when we, when we went down there, we could get within a few hundred yards from the rocket, just driving by it on the road. So we stopped there a moment, and we uh, took a few pictures. And, but the problem was, I could only see the bottom half of it. Apparently, back in January, the wind blew it over, and they have only been able to get the bottom part back reconstructed so far. I'm I'm assuming they're working to complete the construction and get the top back on. But it was still cool. It really looked cool. And if you are in the area, it is well worth a drive-by. Okay, I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, as well as they're entered in the weekly giveaway drawing. I was pleased to receive six new donations over the past week. Greg G. from Sydney, Australia donated at the Apollo level and earned his Galaxy emoji. Steve C. donated at the Gemini level and earned his Moon emoji. Stephen M. from California donated at the Soyuz level and earned his Shooting Star emoji. Tobias S. from Austria sent in another donation this year and moved to the Soyuz level with rocket and moon emojis. Michael M. from Australia donated at the Vostok level 
and Anthony G. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Salute Skylab level with rocket emoji. We are at 213 Patreons right now, and uh, we actually started this year with 218, so we are a net negative 5 after the first two months. So that is just a tad disturbing to me. We are trying to reach 300 by the end of the year, and I thought that was doable, but now I'm beginning to question that. We really need to get some Patreon donors if we can. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 279, with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of the year. For the 279 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH has randomly selected Craig Reniker. Craig, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 293 posted by next Thursday. T-8 until episode 300. So long for now.